Once again, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, page 82 in my Bible. I don't know about you. Page 82 for me. And when you look at Exodus chapter 2, we're going to start reading in chapter 3 in just a minute, but we're also going to look at verse 23 and 24 and 25 once again. Last week, I know I went longer than usual, and for that I apologize. I wondered earlier in the week if I, have, if I took on more than I should have at one time, and that tr- turned out to be true. I should have listened to Bill on Thursday when he kind of laughed when I told him how far I was going, so I should know. Yet these first two chapters have been quite pivotal, pivotal in, in just laying out a foundation on what's to come. In chapter 1, Moses, the, the writer of Exodus, he connects Genesis to Exodus, linking creation with redemption, right? And redemption is, is God's work of creating. In redemption, God is creating. It's not creating a universe or creating trees and animals and, and people, but what he's doing, he's creating a, a people, right? His people. He's bringing in his people. We see this in Exodus and his redemption. He's bringing his people near. Also, we have also, we've seen the sovereignty of God at hand. Biblical teaching on the sovereignty of God, such as from Ephesians 1 and 2, is, is very wonderful. It's glorious text, and it's very helpful for us. But these are passages that help us see the sovereign hand of God throughout the narrative. We see how God is sovereignly working, and his hand is moving throughout history. We see that he has been leading his people. We see how he is sovereign even through a pharaoh who is wicked and evil, who is a part of the seed of the serpent. We see his sovereignty through the the using of the Hebrew midwives to stand up and be courageous in the sight of tyranny, saving the lives of of, of babies and children, which is, which is prolonging and moving and multiplying the people. But also we see in these ladies how they are setting a precedent for life. We see how God's sovereignty through a mother and a sister and even the daughter of Pharaoh to save this one particular baby boy who would be the deliverer and would be displaying to all the world the pattern by which our sovereign God saves. We've also seen in the life of Moses that even though he grows up and he's a, he's a capable man, plenty of zeal and desire, but yet he could not save his people on his own. He could not take out Egypt on his own, nor could he gather his own, the Hebrews, to himself. Though he acted Hastily, we see God's sovereignty in leading him to Midian for 40 years where he would become a shepherd, a husband, and a father. Let's now look at chapter 3. Start reading in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord, Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, and of God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land of a, of, to, be a, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have see, also seen their oppression with which the Egyptian oppresses them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired, inerrant, and holy word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I asked you to look back at chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, because this is sort of Moses' commentary as he's writing, the, writing Exodus, and he's kind of showing us this midway point or this time back in Egypt as he is in Midian, sort of like when you watch a show and then it, it, it pans back over to another scene of another group of people. It's like, meanwhile, back in Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, the, the king of Egypt, this pharaoh, had died. And even though the king of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh died, the people of, the, of, of Israel are still groaning because they are still in slavery. They're, they're still in, in, in slavery. And they cried out, out for help to the Lord. And as we saw last week, that there's no quick fix here. This is 80 years span of when Moses was growing up in Egypt and then another 40 years in Midian has passed. But we see that there still is hope. Because what Moses is telling to us in this commentary is that God has heard their groanings. God has heard their groanings that was lifted to them. He had remembered his covenant. He saw his people and he knew them. And as they seem to be just languishing and suffering in oppression, we see from this text very much in detail that God was always working. That's what we have been seeing. Moses, even in his recklessness, coming out and killing an Egyptian and trying to get these guys on his side, God was still working. God's plan of, re of redemption of his people wasn't something that he had forgotten about. And neither is God just playing chess with Pharaoh waiting for Pharaoh to make his moves so that he could act accordingly, just being a little bit better than him. His plan of redemption, as we talked about last week, was told all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham. And he told Abraham that they would become sojourners in a foreign land, and they would be slaves there for 400 years. But he would judge that nation, Egypt, and he would bring them out. He would deliver them. He would exodus, right? They would exit. And he would give them the wealth of that nation. And he gives them the timing of that. He says the timing will be to the fourth generation. And when the sin of the Amorites is complete, the sin of the, those who are in the land of Canaan are complete, God will judge them, judge Egypt, and judge Canaanites accordingly. There's continuity here, the continuity, the plan of the plan of salvation. There is no plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. There's only plan A, and God is executing plan A to the T, to the very specific moment. We see something else here in verse 25. We hear amazing words about God. And how encouraging it is for us to hear and for us to, to see that he remembers. He remembers his people. He knows his people. He hears the prayers of his people. He sees their, their plight and he knows them. This gives hope to the Christian who's suffering. And he knows their plight. He's with them. But the big question that leaves us right there at verse 25 is to ask the question is this. So what is God going to do about it? 
If he knows it, he hears it, he sees it, what is he going to do about it? Well, that's when we get to our passage today, the passage we just read, because the, the answer to that question is beginning to come forth. In the next two chapters, Moses is going to be at what is called the burning bush passages. And here God, in these chapters, he takes center stage. Now we see verse 1 kind of introducing what's happening to us and gives us the sense that all is normal in Moses' life. Right? The continuance from verse 22. All is well. Moses' life now. He's a husband. He's a father. And he's a shepherd. And he's doing what shepherds do in the land of Midian with the Midianites. He takes care of his sheep in the wilderness. And again, we see the implication here that, that God is not in the kind of hurry that we are in. He is on his own time. But when his moment came, Moses' normal, everyday work of tending the sheep of his father-in-law took him to the right place at the right time, to the mountain of God. Because all of a sudden, Moses was confronted with the Almighty. Confronted with God himself. Oh, brothers and sisters, would you hear this? Oh, such is the wonder as the, as the exactness of God's divine providence. And in his divine providence, bringing Moses to that mountain, we see God's faithfulness, his love, his sovereignty, and his providence. But in these verses, we see more of the character and nature of God because in Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 10, we are confronted like Moses with, with Moses with two more glorious attributes, and that is the holiness of God and the very presence of God. So first I want us to see how, how the Lord is holy. And as he is holy, he is above us. He is far above us. And as he revealed himself to, to Moses, we see God's holiness and how he is holy and how he transcends or is above all of his creation. And we've already talked a little bit about verse 1. Moses is a shepherd, a mighty prince of Egypt, and in the eyes of the world how the mighty have fallen, a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. He's not on some religious pilgrimage. He's not on some spiritual journey to find himself, to have some kind of encounter with God, a walk in the woods. He wasn't searching for God. He was working. He was doing his job. It was just another mundane day of taking care of sheep. And he has done so for 40 years. He leads this flock, as it tells us, to the west side of the wilderness. Isn't that an interesting detail? The west side of the wilderness. And they came to the Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And then when we get to verse 2, it says that all of a sudden, something happens. Well, it doesn't say that. But verse 2, something happens. It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, a brush that was burning, and yet it was not consumed. Now, this is quite the astonishing event. And we don't have all the particular details, how close Moses was, how far it was, and what was going on, what kind of bush it was, and what was all those things. But what we do know are the things that are the most important. And first we see that it was an angel of the Lord that appeared to him. And it's not until verses 4 through 6 does Moses then understand who it is that appears to him. Now, I don't want to spend too much time in, in unpacking what it means of what the angel of the Lord appeared to him actually is. 
but I want to clear it up just a little bit. Clearly, there's a lot of mystery here. But verse 6, 6 tells us who the angel of the Lord is. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh. It is the Lord God. This is what we would call a theophany, right? A physical manifestation of the presence of God. A theophany. But why describe him as an angel? Why would God come as an, in the form of the angel of the Lord? Well, in Exodus, there are a couple more times where the angel of God shows up. Chapter 14, chapter 23, and chapter 33. In every one of these instances, we see how the, this angel of God is representing God. And they represent the, the presence of God. They represent the protection of God. They represent the honor and glory of God. And they represent the divine provision of God to his people. So when we look at this right here and it says the angel of the Lord, we can understand that it's not just simply a messenger, which is what angel means. But this angel, this angelic being represents the full deity of God. And yet he is manifested in such a way where in that the holy God can be in the presence of sinners. Now there is only a few other times where this happens. But the most notable time, and yet is identical with this, where he's identical with and yet distinct from the Lord, where we see the full essence and the deity and the divinity of the holy and yet he still accommodates himself. He condescends to dwell with sinners. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Many theologians then would say that this angel of the Lord is not only a theophany, right, a physical manifestation of God, but a Christophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of the Son of God. Either way, this is an angelic being representing the presence of God. And he has manifested himself, this angel of the Lord appearing to him as this burning bush. Right? It's on fire. Right? We, we have a picture of that. We see bushes burning. And yet the bush is not being consumed. It's not being burnt up. And Moses, just like any one of us, is particularly us, us dudes, we see a fire, we want to go. We, we're just drawn to it, like moths literally to the flame. So like we're moths. And we go right to the flame. And, and Moses is curious. He wants to investigate. So, so kind of like in the, the same idea of, okay, what's this angel, angel of the Lord mean? Why come in the form of an angel? Why a burning bush? What does that mean? Well, clearly, this is, this is a miracle. This is God, as he does, changing the laws of nature. This is a miracle. And, and this miracle is a clear sign that is pointing at something greater. It's pointing at this greater reality, this greater truth, even more wonderful and amazing than a burning bush that's not being burnt up. As awesome as that would be to see, this is pointing to something so much greater. Fire in the Bible is representative often. It's representative or a, a symbol of the presence, the purity, and the holiness of God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God places cherubim at the gate of the Garden of Eden. And they have fiery swords to guard the garden, marking his separation from sin because he is holy. In Genesis chapter 15, again, we're turning to Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, when the Lord makes this covenant with, with Abraham, the presence of God is represented in the, in the smoke, in the fire pot, and a flaming torch as he ratifies the covenant made with Abraham. Later in Exodus 19, we see the, the presence of God is a terrifying pillar of fire that leads his people in the wilderness. We see his presence. We see his power. We see his holiness in that. 
Later in Deuteronomy 4, Moses would say that the Lord your God is a consuming fire. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire which is the day of judgment when the, the Lord will purify the world from sin. And then throughout the book of Revelation, we see that fire is this instrument of purification and judgment and even torment. But in Revelation chapter 19, gloriously is our Savior described as the conquering king riding the white horse, and his eyes are like flame of fire. Fire means something. This is a picture of our Savior as the perfect, righteous judge. Fire stands for the presence of a holy God, and the smoke that rises up from the fire is his gracious veiling of that holiness when it comes to humans. The Lord God is not bound to any particular place we see. For he is, he is spirit, he is, he is omnipresent, and as the Bible shows us that, that he encounters his people in the most unusual places like this, in the middle of the wilderness, at a burning bush. And you know what's funny about this whole event? That now, today, as, as important as this event is, we have no clue where this mountain is. We don't know where Sinai is, we don't know where Mount Horeb is, it's the same thing. We have no idea. The only other place in the Old Testament, besides Exodus, where, where Mount Horeb is, uh, is referred to in 1 Kings chapter 19. And it just kind of throws it in there because Elijah goes there and he fasts there for 40 days and 40 nights. Now there's many people that try to have speculation of where this mountain is, but, but, but that detail was not important. The detail of where this mountain and to, to the Israelites or even Moses isn't there because nothing is sacred specifically about that one particular place. Yes, historically significant, sure. But what made it sacred, what made it special that day, what made it calling it the mountain of God was not the place or Moses being there, but it was the presence of the almighty God. That's what made it special. And there the holy, represented in the fire that burned, was the purity and holiness of God. And when we look at verse 4, we see God and we hear him speak. And Moses, like any one of us, He's turning to see the bush to understand why it's not burning. And when he does, it says, God called out to him, Moses, Moses. Why would he call out to Moses? God is being merciful to Moses. Kind of like when I see Calvin and his little bike careening down the driveway into the road. And I'm like, Calvin, don't go on the road. Mercifully, I'm calling out to my son because of danger. <laughs> danger. This was a merciful act to him, and here's why. Because Moses does not know who he is approaching. He doesn't know who this is. He doesn't know who he is approaching. And he doesn't know how to approach him. He doesn't know who, and he doesn't know how. If you've, if you've ever watched the, um, the TV series that came on years back called John Adams, it's a very well-done miniseries about John Adams, founding father, second president of the United States. And in a particular scene, after the Revolutionary uh, War was over, and he be, and before he became vice president of, under George Washington, he spent many years in England to become the first ambassador, one of our first ambassadors there. And there's a scene where he's walking, to, walking in to, the, to meet the king as the ambassador, the new ambassador of, 
of England, our new ambassador to England. And you can imagine that he probably has some choice words maybe he wants to say to good old King George III. But as he's in there, he is kind of in awe and kind of in stunned that he's going to be seeing this king that once was his king. But also this king who was once his, his adversary. And he knows, because he wants being a subject of the king, he knows one doesn't just walk up to the king. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the customs or the courtesies are. And as he goes in there, there's some, some guy in there showing him, this is how you walk to the king. You take three steps and you bow, but you never look. You take three steps more and you, and you bow. And you take another step this way and you look down and you wait till you're acknowledged before you actually look at the king. It was something, something sort of like that. And us Americans, we look at that and go, Whatever, dude. But he is stunned by it. But he is also very awkward because he doesn't know how to approach the king. He's not accustomed to the, to the decorum, and he gets that lesson, but he still is awkward and humbled by coming before the king. And here is Moses sort of in the same place, being addressed by not just some humanly king who requires these protocols as, as, uh, 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 to match the position, but this is the sovereign king and creator of the universe who is perfect and holy. And so Moses better take care on how he approaches this God in, an, in a way. And he must listen to see if he tells them, this is how you approach me. Because his very life depends on it. God must reveal himself to Moses. And Moses replies in such a familiar way, like Abraham in Genesis 22, hear my. And Jacob in Genesis 46, here am I. Or Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, here am I. Moses says, here am I. And God tells him how to approach him, doesn't he? And he gives him the command in verse 5. He says, do not come near. Don't come any closer and take your sandals off your feet. For you are on holy ground. Again, mercifully, mercifully God was keeping separation between himself and from Moses. And why? Because, because between God and between Moses, there is a massive gap of the divine and then humanity. And because God is holy, God is transcendent, and he tells Moses to take off his sandals because God is too holy. And the ground of the presence of God is too holy for his shoes. This isn't just only a a simple sign of respect, like as if you come over to someone's house and you know, you're kind of walking in for the first time, you've never been there, and you kind of notice all their shoes are lined up in the outside, and you're like, I better take my shoes off. It's not just simply a, a sign of respect, but it is out of reverence for what has been made holy. Again, the place isn't the special place, but it's the one who is there that makes it special. God's presence made it holy ground. It was God's presence. And then Moses taking off his shoes is recognizing that, that he is of the earth. Taking his shoes off says, I am of the earth. I am earthly. I am human. I am creature. I am defiled. I am dirty. I am sinful. And the two cannot be mixed. We get a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 6 of the very angels, they're not humanity. And they're not earthly. And nor are they sinful, but still in the presence of the holiness of God. These creatures who were created by God cover their face with their wings because they cannot gaze at his holiness. They cover their feet with another set of wings because they cannot, or because they must acknowledge that their creatureliness is before the Creator. And I just have to say, isn't it God's mercy that He would give them wings to cover themselves up? 
And then in verse 6, God identifies himself to Moses. That he is the God of his father and of the patriarchs. And what he is telling them is this. He says, I am not the gods around you. I'm not them losers. I am the God of your father and of your father's fathers. I am not something new, and I am not something unknown. I am the God who has already revealed himself to your fathers. And now he is revealing himself to Moses. Now what I first want us to see here is that the Lord, again, he is completely above us. This is no casual conversation between humans. This is no casual conversation between a human authority speaking to a servant or a boss speaking to an employee or a father speaking to a child. This is God, the only God, and who by just by his very presence, he makes the ground holy. And he speaks and he commands authority. And he reveals himself by his word to his creature. And then this man's response, Moses' response, tells us everything we need to know about this reaction. And verse 6 tells us that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now that's not the response that popular religion and popular Christianity teaches that man is have before God. Because God is often regrettably brought down to man's level and treats him like a friend or a friendly grandfather who is there to give you whatever you want or to make you feel better about yourself or to justify your sin. Holiness Holiness and the demand of holiness is completely missing to accommodate our creatureliness. We must not excuse ourselves in our creatureliness by belittling or forgetting about the holiness of God because Moses is here and he is utterly overwhelmed. He is utterly undone. He is in fear. In fact, he couldn't even look. This very thing that he once was curious about is no longer curiosity, but fear. Terrifying fear. God is awful. God is terrifying. Sorry, Joshua, if he's back there. Okay. And I say he's awful, and I say he's terrible, because in the traditional sense of the words, we see that Moses is in awe. And he's in terror. And the wrath of God wasn't being poured out on him. And he's hiding his face. We cannot, we cannot miss this. We cannot forget the holiness of God. We must, we must be fearful of it because it is a fearful thing to behold this is the second time in the bible where the word holy is used and it's the first time used in relation to god and as we all know it means to be separate but if you really want to go to it's a very literalist meaning it actually means to cut it means to cut like if you have a steak you're cutting it in half you're Separating it. But it means more than, than just separate. It means to be transcendent. And to be transcendent means that in every single way, God is above and God is beyond us. He is supreme and he is great. He is all-powerful. He is pure. He is righteous. And he's perfectly just according to him. Not us. 
not man's law, not man's desires, man's emotion, but according to him. He's transcendently separate. And because he's transcendently separate, that causes us to have fear and awe and terror because of that holiness. Because it is completely mysterious to us. It is so incomprehensible to us. And anything that is incomprehensible in this way is fearful to us. As many stood in fear of that storm this past week. Because we just don't know. And this is God. And when creatures are reminded of this, when the, the fire of the purity of God is before us, it is terrifying because we are so sinful. Some of you probably know I'm going to have to go there, and here I go, R.C. Sproul, the holiness of God. He says, we fear God because he is holy. Our fear is not the healthy fear that the Bible encourages us to have. Encourages us to have. Our fear is servile fear, a fear born of dread. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He is the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. And in his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be one of our greatest traumas. We are sinners. And in our attempt to find security, humanity can never come before God. We can never stand before God on our own. And if we try, it would only kill us, as it would have killed Moses that day. Because God is holy and he demands holiness of his creatures. And we cannot because there is no one righteous, no, not one. And God cannot be any less holy than he is. And to be any less holy, he would not be God at all. And for him to not be God at all, how terrifying it would be. And how terrifying it would be if our God was unholy. A.W. Tozer said in his book on the attributes of God, he says, I tell you this, I want God to... I want God to be what God is, the impeccably holy, unapproachable holy thing, the all-holy one. I want him to be and remain holy. I want his heaven to be holy and his throne to be holy, but I don't want him to change or modify his requirements, even if it shuts me out. I want something holy left in this universe. And the reason why is because the alternative is unimaginable. The only way for us to approach God and to come into his presence, the presence of his holiness, is to become holy ourselves. And if that's the case, then alone we are in trouble. Because we cannot make ourselves holy. But as we know, this is not the end of the story. And it's true that we cannot come before God. But what we see here is not Moses going to God. But God has come to Moses. Moses is fearfully looking away from the holiness of God, but still in verse 7 through 10, the Lord, Yahweh, still continues to speak, and he tells Moses what we heard earlier in verses 23-25 of chapter 2, and that essentially is he is concerned for his people. So the question again we can ask ourselves is, why would such a holy God, who demands holiness, who is perfect in his purity, have any interest in mere creatures? And people who are failures and sinners and slaves. But God, as we see in this burning bush, and his concern for his people is this unbreakable love for his unholy people. And as he reveals himself to Moses, he has shown his concern for them. And how he is going to work to fulfill his promises 
and eternal purposes for his glory and for their joy and for ours as well. In verse 8, this is stunning. Verse 8, it says, and this is God speaking, and I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, certainly he's come down. We see it. We see the, the evidence of that, right, in the manifestation, in the presence of the burning bush and the angel of the Lord. God has come down. He has stooped down to man in a way that, that man could approach him. And he's very much, he very much has concerns for his people. But what is, again, astonishing to us is that God at all would come to us. And yet it says he has come down. He's come down to our level. And I never say, he didn't come down in sin and dirtiness. Is that a word? Come down being dirty. But he has brought his presence within time and within space, and he reveals himself to Moses. Which I think is remarkable as well as the same language of God coming down. Describes, God, describes how what God does two other times earlier back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, God came down and he destroyed the Tower of Babel and confused their languages. In Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord, the Lord came down to see the, the full extent of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, we all know what happened there. And then we see the same language here. But this time he didn't come down to judge. He came down to deliver his people to provide for them, and to give them his messenger. And doesn't this remind us of something so sweet? Because this is exactly what God has done in Christ Jesus. He has come down. In John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus tells us that as the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 3, he says, no one has ascended into heaven except who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He has come down. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 9 describes it this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you might by his poverty might become rich. Not to mention from Philippians 2, 5 through 8, or Hebrews 2.9, Jesus came down from heaven to save his people, to deliver his people, to lift us to glory. And it is through Jesus that we enter into a personal saving relationship with God, in which we are saved from the power of sin, from the holy wrath of God, and we are given a righteousness that allows us to enter in. He has condescended so that we can be made holy through his sacrifice. And he has come to us. He has come down to us. And we see how, why he has also come down. He's come down to provide for his people. The Israelites, God's people, what they'll, be, they'll be led into what is called the promised land. And verse 8 describes this land as being, as being a good land. A, a spacious land, a broad land, a land flowing with, with milk and honey. I think when I read that first when I was a kid, I, I kind of thought of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And I tell you, this sounds pretty good to people who are slaves, doesn't it? You mean we get our own place? That's our own home, it's not the Egyptians' place? A place that's going to be fertile, a place that's going to be rich, a place that's going to have plenty of room. It tells us that he is sending his deliverer, providing a deliverer. 
And he gave Moses, right? He, this deliverer, this Moses, he provides Moses a way to come and to stay there at the beginning of the passage. But the Lord's also in his purposes and condescending was to take Moses and to send him. Moses says, here am I. Verse 10, Moses is commissioned to do what? To go to Pharaoh. To go to Pharaoh and to bring out of Egypt those who are oppressing them, to bring out your people. Bring out my people. The Lord is appointing Moses to be their deliverer. But he's also appointing Moses to be his mediator. To be his mediator. God himself is the ultimate deliverer of his people, and he uses Moses. And here again, we see, like Moses, the greater Christ also came to be our mediator and our deliverer and our savior. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, there is, and, and there is one mediator between God and the man, the man Christ Jesus, Hebrew 8.6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the old, and as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises, not Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Moses became their mediator and deliverer. He became their mediator between God and man, not to speak his own words, but to speak God's word. To speak God's word. God was providing for his people with what? His word. He was giving him them his word. And I want you to see, this is huge in this passage. That the presence of God is directly linked to the word of God. The real revelation to Moses that day, brothers and sisters, was not the burning bush. But the real revelation to Moses that day was the words of God, was the word of God. And even though Moses saw the burning bush that day and he was curious and he went up, he didn't leave curious anymore. He left terrified as he had the words of God as God had spoken to him. God's word is the real revelation here. And what Moses writes about, what he writes about here is not, is, not about some, is, is not some fallible human reflection on some weird existential experience, but it is what God himself has said to him. And what did God speak to Moses? What did he reveal to, them, to him? He revealed to him his concern for his people and how he's going to lead them out and how he's going to use Moses to deliver them. And Moses is sent to, the, to his people with what? With God's word. And he's sent with God's word to Israel. And he's sent to Pharaoh, as we will see, see later. This is the word of God. Let my people go. The authority is not Moses with his little wood staff. His authority is this is the word of God. You better, you better be obedient. Brothers and sisters, and what we see here in the Bible is God's word is how God encounters us. He always comes to you with his word and through his word. His holy scriptures, as they were delivered to us, we do not look for signs. We do not look for wonders. We do not look for prophecies or even little voices in our heads or pulls on our hearts. Because the Lord, as he has said, he has revealed himself in his word, and that alone is perfectly sufficient. And to look anywhere else would be to miss what God has said. And God sent his son, like Moses, his son who condescended in the human flesh and yet without sin, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down. And we, we have seen his glory. And guess what? Because Christ has come in the flesh, that glory has not crushed us. It has not killed us. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't this goodness? And the pattern in Exodus is the pattern by which the Lord has saved us ultimately through his Son, Jesus Christ. He is terrifyingly holy. Terrifyingly holy, where, where none of us could ever stand but God, right? I mean, this is a but God passage, Exodus chapter 3. But God, Moses tending sheep as an old man in the middle of nowhere, but God shows up in a burning bush to speak to him his words, to reveal to him, this is how I'm going to save my people. And you are going to be my deliverer, and you are going to be my mediator to his people. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he sent his son. And by his grace, he has made us alive together with Christ. And that's not my word. That's God's word, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. He has come down to dwell among us and to save us. And he has given us his word. And as his people, if you are in Christ, then his presence is with you this very morning by his Holy Spirit. Oh, what a gift. What a gift. And turning to Romans 8, he says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. If Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of, him, because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In you. God is above us. And he is holy. But he has come down to redeem his people and to dwell with his people. And he has given us his spirit. What glorious good news that we can be reminded of this morning. And all God's people say,